Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are amidst the longest economic cycle on record. The Fed is certainly in the dovish mode. Trade risk appears to be on the back burner, at least for now. So the question is, what do investors do after that phenomenal first half of the year? To help us guide us for the second half, we welcome our good friend Tom Kennedy. Tom is global head of macro and fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. They have lots of money under management. Uh, Tom joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive <laughs> Brokers Studio. Trust me, they have lots of money the, under management. The, the, tech, the technical the term for tons, it, yeah. Tons, gajillions, gajillions. So, Tom... <laughs> What do we do here? Again, a great first half of the year. Probably a tendency for a lot of investors is to protect what they made. If that's what somebody comes to you, what do you tell them? Yeah, it comes to me a lot to ask that. I think it's the right question. You get protection can come in lots of shapes and sizes, right? I want to protect myself by still staying invested. I think adding longer maturity bonds uh, is a great portfolio hedge. Common pushback, yields are so low, Tom. Why would I do that? Well, they could go lower, and maybe we want to talk about that. The other pieces are gold. I think historically has been a great late cycle play, and it protects you. My, my only pushback there is it doesn't have any yield to it, so it's a pure protection play. And then what we have seen most on the first half of the, of the year was forward steepener trades, the place where the spread between a two-year treasury and a 10-year treasury would, would steepen in a down, downdraft scenario. But the forward market was relatively flat. So we had people positioning to protect their portfolio for a world where the Fed had to cut aggressively and steepen the curve. They were using that as a portfolio hedge, uh, could get lots of leverage in that trade. Um, that trade, I think, has largely played out. The forward market is steepening already. So I think this is still a good trade, but it's not going to protect your portfolio the same way we thought it would earlier in the year. So you're not recommending Bitcoin? No, no. we're not. Okay. That is not part of our toolkit at the <laughs> not- moment. And I'll pause there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you might, it might, might become one to, one to look for. Uh, I do have to wonder what you're expecting for Friday. We do get that payrolls number, and the market certainly is positioned for three uh, 25 basis point rate cuts by December. Yeah. What do we need to see in order to maintain calm on Friday? Yeah. The, the calm number, I think, is north of 125 to 150, roughly around consensus. Um, I think you see anything under 100, and I think you have to start to think, well, what does the Fed do in July? Is it do we have to start to price 25 basis point cut in July? This conversation, I think, gets, gets very myopically focused. What does the Fed do in July? The base case, I think, at this point has to be that they cut 25 basis points. Inflation expectations are low. Growth is rolling over. But most importantly, the Fed hasn't pushed back on this. They have not pushed back on financial market pricing. So that should tell us that they are relatively comfortable with the way the market is pricing at this point. Um, between now and then, Powell will speak one more time. And assuming Friday's job, role, job report is okay, I think you'll have actually Powell lean into it and say, you know what, 20, uh, 25 is okay with, 50 is unlikely. Okay, so what's the big risk on Friday? Oh, I think the risk is that we start to see a crack in the, in the labor market. This has been the foundation of the argument that there's no emergency happening right now. The Fed's going to cut, but it's doing it because it's a recognition maybe that they hiked one or two times too many last year. They're going get, to get down towards a lower neutral rate. If the consumer's cracks, which it tends to be the last piece to crack, um, that argument that they're, they're, they're only going to hike, uh, sorry, excuse me, only going to cut one or two times looks less likely, and it's more likely they'll have to cut aggressively. Um, so I think that's the real risk scenario. All right, that's a good, good summary for the Fed. Let's go across to Europe. We have a new ECB president, mm. Christine Lagarde. What does that mean for you and for markets, do you think? 
think we just priced out a, a hawkish leadership from the ECB. That's got to be step number one recognition. Um, from what we can deduce from her is that she's likely to be supportive of accommodation for, from the ECB going forward, uh, given the limited impact we've, we've seen in her past statements. Kind of an interesting fact. If we remember 2014, before ECB instituted QE, the IMF report that year, six months before QE came out, she suggested in there that QE was warranted if inflation remained low for a long time. So she even favored unconventional tools back in 2014. I don't see anything in what she said since then that would suggest otherwise. So uh, that's definitely encouraging the doves over in Europe. I do want to just bring you this headline at President Trump just tweeting that China and Europe are playing a big currency manipulation game. You are seeing the dollar move a bit on this, uh, weakening a touch against its major peers. I'm wondering how the dollar plays in here. If the dollar does continue to weaken, uh, is that supportive for U.S. bonds or uh, not, considering the fact that a lot of Japanese investors are coming in on an unhedged basis? Yeah. This question gets tough. The, the monetary policy accommodation is globally competitive at this point. So I think you have to answer the where will currency go question with who has more ammunition? Who has more ability to ease financial conditions? Is it Japan? Probably not in the developed world. Is it Europe? Probably not. It's probably the Fed. So between... Your, your timing now, where does flight to quality come into play if you hit a downdraft in growth that's substantial versus a Fed that's trying to ease financial conditions to prevent that from happening? So I think we're in a period now where the dollar is likely to be um, biased to, to depreciate, but you're, you're talking about a timing game now, I think. It, it, and to be very clear, my base case is not that we hit a uh, substantial downdraft in growth uh, over the next six to 12 months. But we do, we do place a one in three chance of it happening uh, in the next six to 12 months. So it's quite high. Tom Kennedy, you'll have to come back after uh, July 4th holiday and elucidate more of your opinions because I've got a lot more questions. Tom Kennedy, Global Head of Macro and Fixed Income Strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Well, Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF, is poised to take the helm of the European Central Bank after Mario Draghi leaves in October. With us to help us break this down is Irene Fennell Hunigman. She is an adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University in New York City. Irene, thanks so much for having us. To what extent was this announcement of uh, Ms. Lagarde a surprise? Um, I think it was, first of all, thank you for letting me come back on Bloomberg to discuss this. Um, I think that uh, this was a surprise, uh, but at the same time, everyone thinks it's a very smart choice. Uh, it was a surprise because it was assumed that this would go to a more conventional or traditional high-level economist or other head of a central bank. However, I want to make one point because one of the comments has centered that Madame Lagarde would bring more political expertise rather than economic central bank expertise. However, it's important to remember that following the sovereign debt crises in Europe from 2010 to 2014, this was a very unique time where for the first time the IMF under, before that DSK and Lagarde, the ECB under Trichet and Draghi, and 
the EU Commission had to work extremely closely together for the famous Troika to try to bail out these countries, both on the sovereign nation basis and on the banking sector. So the relationship and knowledge and connectivity between the IMF and the ECB is far deeper than it would have been in other circumstances. Irene, this is a really interesting point, and I have to wonder, there have been a lot of comments about her nomination, about Christine Lagarde's nomination, saying, in general, being the head of a central bank is becoming increasingly a political role and less of an economics role. I'm wondering, given the backdrop that is unique to the European Union, do you think that is a leap too far and that this really is an ECB-specific necessity for a political kind of figure rather than simply an economics one? I think it's a combination. Um, I think clearly the ECB right now has had marvelous leadership under Draghi, but even more important, the ECB has taken on a mandate and an expanded scope of functions far beyond its original mandate of pure price stability and monetary policy. Under the new banking union in Europe, the ECB today is very much in the same position as the Fed on having both extensive uh, and expansive supervisory and monitoring power over the major banks in the uh, Eurozone area and in, of course, all European banking sectors. So this already puts it in a different position where clearly interrelationship between governments and between the banks and the national central bank is much tighter, is much greater than it would have been. Whether this applies more to the ECB uh, than elsewhere, that may be the case because of the unique structure of the Eurozone and also because a brand new EU commission is now also coming into play post-crisis. So I think all of these factors play together that there is no longer a way to nicely compartmentalize the economic side and the political side. So, Professor, what do you think uh, Madame Lagarde's goals and strategy will be when she, assuming she assumes uh, this position? I think she will probably follow very closely uh, the Draghi, both methodology and policy. Uh, This seems to be very much a continuation. Uh, She herself has uh, seemed to have had an expansive view of the role of major, both multilateral and central banks uh, in helping Uh, to stabilize economies, maintaining stability, taking a very cautious approach, not to assume that economies are, particularly in Europe, suddenly doing well enough for anything dramatic to occur. Yet at the same time, she will have to be very careful because there are not that many tools left, in a sense, uh, for the ECB to play with. Uh, So there I think she will need expert economic advice on the technical side, But what will be very important is to, first of all, establish prestige and total credibility in the markets, particularly in Europe, which I think she has because of her contacts, because of her connection with the different governments and what she accomplished at the IMF. I think also she will be in a very interesting position, along with the new heads at the uh, EU Commission and Council, of dealing with Brexit. Because Brexit is not only the political set of issues, but it's very much also the set of issues of what policy will the Bank of England take? What will be the interrelationship between the ECB and the Bank of England? What may be the impact? So she will immediately be thrown much more into that. And it will also uh, be a question of basically 
uh, very carefully and slowly monitoring growth in, in Europe. So I, I guess as you were talking about the need for this sort of political savvy, I'm struck by the counter argument to this, the idea that the more political a central bank head gets, the less economic focused it will become and the more, frankly, arbitrary policy will become or hinged on the popular sentiment of the time. And I'm just wondering, you know, is that a concern of yours? Is there a a historical precedent uh, in terms of an increasingly political central bank that gives you comfort rather than pause? I'm not sure that the central bank or any central bank will necessarily respond to more popular sentiment. And in fact, if anything, we've seen with the Fed, with Jerome Powell, really the ability to push back on sudden and acute political pressure. So I think that uh, if it's an issue of suddenly seeing the central bank Uh, the ECB is functioning as an arm of German policy, I don't think that'll be the case. Um, I think right now what it does show is a much tighter German-French partnership, which clearly brilliantly orchestrated bringing in a German woman now as new, uh, Ursula von der Leyen as new EU commissioner, uh, president, and uh, Christine Lagarde at the uh, ECB. That's one element which, yes, is more political. But fundamentally, what we saw with Draghi, what we seem to have seen all along with the Fed, they seem to be very cautious and more responding to, in fact, all of the economic facts, uh, rather than uh, responding more ad hoc to any particular uh, sentiment. Irene Finnell-Honigman, thank you so much for joining us today. Irene Finnell-Honigman is adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University in New York, talking about Christine Lagarde's nomination to head the ECB. Initially, when we talked about blockchain, it was this sort of sexy, unknown thing that was going to lead to the disruption of traditional uh, currencies. Now it has actually uh, got a little bit more on the back burner, and yet it has been increasingly adopted as a mainstay uh, for a lot of industries. And uh, here to talk about it, I'm so glad to say, is Bridget Avren Kralogen. Uh, she is Senior Vice President of Global Industries clients, platforms, and blockchain for IBM. Bridget, thank you so much for being with us. Can you first just talk a little bit about the adoption of blockchain across a variety of industries so far? Yes, thanks, Lisa, for having me on the show today. I'm so happy to talk about it. So yes, there's been a lot of hype, as you said, around the crypto and elements and the currency elements of blockchain. But the real Um, aspect that blockchain allows is very complex um, multi-party processes or workflows between um, customers, competitors, and industries can be safely stored and exchanged in a way that they can be shared between all participants. And once something is put on a blockchain, it can't be changed We talk about it being immutable, which means that anything that needs to show provenance will actually work fantastically on a blockchain. So um, we are working with many enterprise blockchains across diverse industries like shipping, which we've got some big news I'll talk to you about later, but also trust and provenance for food and food safety, diamonds and jewelry, 
commodities trading um, and energy trading off a grid, um, carbon credits, plastic recycling. Um, so it's really um, in real life aspects for big, big industries like food and, and shipping, but also small industries like microfinance in Kenya, where we actually have a microfinance blockchain. So, so, uh, so we're excited to see the real work. So, Bridget, give us a sense of how blockchain is being used in the global shipping supply chain. Yes. So, so that, that, that Paul, so, so actually just yesterday we announced that um, our trade lens, our um, uh, sh- shipping blockchain for the shipping industry, has announced, we've announced that um, we have two new members, Hapak Lloyd and ONE. And this follows the news in, in May that CMA, CGM and Mediterranean Shipping Company would be on the platform. We started this a couple of years ago with Maersk and we are now in a situation where 15 ocean carrier lines um, are on the blockchain called TradeLens, our blockchain, and more than half of the world's ocean container cargo will be available on this blockchain. So, so with 100 users already, 100 participants already. So why is this important and what's the blockchain impact? Well, if you think about it, 90% of everything we use every day is shipped over the oceans. It is the most primary um, area of transport. And there's an estimate that around 20% of the cost of shipping an item is in documents um, and time wasted because of poor documentation. So an average an average simple shipment will have around 200 documents exchanged, around 300 different people involved, all on paper, all on different systems. And so what we are able to do is we've created an, an integrated trusted blockchain platform where every participant in the shipping cycle, so think about a freight forwarder, the person who's shipping the goods, the carriers, the customs, the ports, uh, the the the, the um, carrier, the land carrier, will all share that data on the block blockchain and um, be able to see it instantly. And there's kind of like one version of the truth. So yeah. what that allows you to do, right, is that anyone can quickly pinpoint where your, their cargo is located, the state of its availability, uh, that reduces port and terminal congestion, reduces time for truckers, reduces customs and inspections delays, um, and ultimately shortens the lead time. So, Bridget... And then... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I really wanted to just pick up on, on one point. You said that 20% of shipping costs stem from the documentation process. And I'm just wondering if you could address how much you expect using the blockchain for the shipping industry could reduce the cost. So... So we, we, we've, we are using data actually supplied by the World Economic Forum. And the World Economic Forum believes that reducing barriers within the international supply chain, which means really the things I've talked about, you know, speeding speeding up, reducing documentation, um, improving lead times, um, reducing delays, reducing spoilage because things are sitting there. There's a view that that could um, increase GDP, worldwide GDP, by 5% and total trade volume by 15%. So those are those are those are significant um, if you think about it economic impact um, factors both in terms of reducing costs but also um, in, increasing inclusion for people to be able to actually ship globally and to export. Um, so, so again, using the World Economic Forum, there's a, an estimate that improve, these kinds of improvements would improve um, by around 15%. So we, 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 are, we, are, we, are, we are one of the reasons I think that the whole industry is 
is really stepping up and getting involved in this blockchain is because it does benefit every participant in this eco- ecosystem to solve a problem that couldn't be solved yeah. in another way. That is fascinating. I mean, the 5% GDP lift would be, uh, you know, monumental. We'll have to see how that plays out. Bridget Van Crollagen, thank you so much. Bridget is Senior Vice President of Global Industries, Clients, Platforms, and Blockchain for IBM. Broadcom tries again after the debacle with Qualcomm. Broadcom now in advance talks to buy cybersecurity firm Symantec Corporation. Cybersecurity, obviously, a very hot field right now, given how many threats there are from hackers. Joining us now to talk about the deal, Mandeep Singh, senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, very much in the office and present and analyzing this deal on this pre-July 4th day in New York City. So, uh, Mandeep, what can you tell us about this deal that you find most interesting? Well, this deal is very similar to what Broadcom did with CA last year. And uh, what it tells you is the company is trying to diversify from hardware to software. It's fairly obvious this deal has the exact same characteristics, $4 billion in revenue from Symantec. And the company, Symantec, has been uh, you know, underperforming for the last three years. When you look at the cybersecurity market, which is extremely fragmented, Symantec hasn't been able to turn itself around. They have had four CEO changes, and now, you know, they don't even have a permanent CEO. So looks like it's right in the playbook of Hock Tan, the CEO of Broadcam. He really could execute on this one, and there are some synergies that obviously will come about when this deal gets announced. Well, these Broadcom folks are really active on the M&A front. I mean, as Lisa mentioned, Qualcomm, that deal was blocked by President Trump, but they bought CA last year. Is the street backing up? Uh, this management and this board in terms of this aggressive acquisition policy? They are, and Broadcom is a serial acquirer. You can see that, you know, it's something that I feel it's in the DNA of the company and they execute very well. So if there's anybody out there, you know, and it comes to large tech that can really turn around Symantec and fix it, it's going to be Broadcom. And and so from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. When you talk about synergies, what are they? Because I do think of Broadcom as being a hardware story and I think of Symantec as being a software company. Sure. So uh, what Broadcom has showed with CA integration is obviously there are uh, some revenue synergies because they cater to an enterprise customer base. So Symantec's revenue, half of it comes from enterprise. So uh, over there you could see now that Broadcom has a footprint in infrastructure software with CA integration, they can really leverage Symantec on the enterprise side. On the consumer side, which is Symantec's flagship Norton product and the LifeLock business, I'm not sure if there are any imminent synergies, especially on the revenue side. On the cost side, yes, there are some synergies that will come about simply because this company is too big. Their sales and marketing expenses are very high for Symantec, and you can see uh, there are some cost synergies over there. So obviously this deal has not been announced. Uh, it's speculating that it will occur. Any sense as to valuation? I'm just looking at Broadcom stock down about almost 4% today. Um, is there a risk here that they might overpay? Well, 
One thing is they're more likely to go for a stock deal simply because uh, Broadcom trades at about five to six times sales. Symantec trades at about three to four times sales. So I can see, you know, why a Broadcom may be interested in using their stock more. And we've seen that with Salesforce, you know, buying Tableau with an all stock yep. offer. So given the leverage situation uh, with Broadcom, they're more likely to use uh, some stock here. One thing I'm curious about is why is Broadcom so aggressive? Why is their playbook acquisitions to such a degree? Well, look at it this way. Broadcom's uh, DNA, uh, the company is built around hardware. They're really trying to, you know, uh, and, and hardware businesses have lower uh, EBITDA margins, operating margins. So I think what software gives them, in this case, Symantec has operating margins uh, over 30%. So now with CA and Symantec, Broadcom's uh, operating margin profile goes up simply because software businesses are attractive. So are we going to see more M&A here in the security, cybersecurity space? I mean, Lisa correctly pointed out that, boy, that's, that's a hot area. Do you think we're going to see more consolidation there? Absolutely. Cybersecurity is one area in this, of the software market that's very fragmented. There are new attacks happening every day. There are new companies popping up every day that solve those attacks. And, you know, the fragmentation uh, is a nightmare for enterprises because they are just putting band-aids, you know, putting one solution on top of another. And from an enterprise perspective, they want to see some consolidation in the cybersecurity space. So we have already seen the likes of Palo Alto and Fortinet and, you know, the next gen firewall security companies being acquisitive, you're going to see more of it, I think, with this deal. I feel like people just want to throw all the smart people in cybersecurity uh, programming in a room and say, just go figure out what's next. I tell I you, mean, if I were a young engineer coming out of school, I'd be like, I'm going to be a, forget the app thing, I'm going to be a cybersecurity expert because that's just like a growth sec, you know, industry for, I can't, forever. Do you have time to have lunch with my son? I'm oh, kidding. of course. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Mandeep Singh, thank you so much. Mandeep is Senior Tech Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.